Uh, we're going to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Turning to the King is the title of the message. Before we jump in, I want to give you a quick update. In 2015, we opened this building uh, because we outgrew a previous location at the corner of Lincoln and Ontario. You may have been a little confused if you're new to us. You see our sign out there during the week. And we own that property as well. So we own two properties. Right now, that property is being leased to two churches and a school. And they're doing some great ministry there. And one of those churches wants to buy that property. And it's called New Day Christian Fellowship. So they're trying to figure all that out. So we have been looking around because we're on 2.2 acres and we have a growing church and we'd like to just have the ability to do, to have grass, to have fellowship areas, to do some things outreach wise, etc. So we've pressed on doors over the years and it's been eight years since we came here. And we, we kind of came here knowing that it had a, a, an incredible sanctuary, of course, but it lacked in some other, other areas for the kids, classroom size, etc. In fact, last week we had about 15 toddlers in a small room behind that wall, and it was packed in there. So um, about a month ago, Carlene Allen, one of the owners of what's called the Hillside Tree Farm, passed away, and she went home to be with the Lord. And a couple people uh, had informed us that the property was for sale, it's 4.3 miles from here, about four and three quarters acres. And anyway, I called the realtor and I just said, hey, uh, we're a church. We have a lot of history at the farm. When we were in a business park many years ago, probably about 20 years ago, we met the Allens and they opened up their property to us. And a lot of us uh, are here who were part of that. If, if you're not familiar with the Hillside Tree Farm, they do the craft fair there two times a year, and they have these bomb molasses cookies. Have you had the molasses cookies from the farm? Anyway, yes. So uh, here's what we're doing. We're, we, as we uh, try to faithfully lead you guys as servant leaders, the leadership has been praying. We met with, the, we met with a group of us at the property. The family would like us to have the property. And so they're not giving it to us. <laughs> I'd like to tell you that it's, it's a gift. You can pray for that, but, but they know that it would be their mom and dad's dream to have a church there, especially Living Truth, because we have a history there. So here's what's happening. This would be an additional property that we would acquire we would not be moving from here any time in the near future. So you can just know we're not pulling up stakes and moving. This would probably be about a five-year process to develop this property. But we see it as an outreach opportunity, a place for the kids and families. There is a special piece at this property. You can just tell that the Holy Spirit's there. And it's, got, it's just kind of a nostalgic, neat place. And so if we could redeem it for the kingdom of God, I think it would be awesome. It's already been used for the kingdom over the years. But anyway, that's what's before us. The family has decided, knowing that we had some interest, to basically put things on hold until we decide whether or not we can do it. So basically, here's what we need from you. We need your prayers. Uh, just seek the Lord. We don't want to do anything outside God's will. So if the Lord's in it, and I will just tell you, this would not be the place I would pick as a main corner to have a cool, you know, rocking church there. But if the Lord's in it, the Lord's in it. It's got the space that we need, and we could do some really cool things with it. So we'll just see what happens. 
I will give you an update as soon as I know something. All I'm asking you to do is pray. If you decide you want to give towards the possibility, that would be awesome. You guys know how we operate. We, we are not pressuring anybody to do anything beyond what the Lord leads you to do. But please pray. And then if it gets a little bit closer and it looks like something we could add to our ministry, then we'll do that and we'll let you know what's going on. And I, I do see that it would be a project for the next several years that we would do together. There's a lot of work to be done <laughs> uh, if we do acquire the property. So anyway, would you just take a moment to pray with me? Father, thank you for this wonderful congregation. We have so much history, many of us together, uh, decades really, 25 years for me and my family in this community, serving and, and watching you do miracles through your providential hand. And we just lay this before you, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know if it's your will, it will happen. And we're, gonna, we're just gonna seek you together, Lord, and we thank you for all you are doing through this fellowship, for the fact that you've allowed us really to reach the world with the gospel from this location. And wherever you lead us, Lord, we are gonna continue to do what you've called us to do. Thank you for this family of believers. Thank you for some time in the word of God as we turn our attention to hear what the Spirit would say to the church, open our ears, soften our hearts, speak to us, and help us to obey you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. Turning to the King is the message. We're moving through the Gospel of Matthew. We normally stand for the reading of God's Word, so if you could stand to your feet if you're able. Matthew 9, we're reading verses 18 through 26. Matthew 9, 18. While Jesus was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Matthew 9, 19. Jesus got up and began to follow him and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. And when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. 25. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And this news spread throughout all the land. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you, Father, for your holy word. Turning to the king, Matthew 9, 18 through 26. So as we read the gospel accounts and we think about the message to us, this is uh, a very famous account in the Gospels. If you've been around the Bible any length of time, you're probably familiar with it. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all intertwine the stories in the same way. But Mark and Luke give us much more detail than Matthew does. And we actually have a variation here in the story. Matthew says that Jairus says the daughter has died. Mark and Luke say she's on the, at the point of death. How do we make sense of such a variation in the story? I've said to you that eyewitness testimonies often can vary, and people can pick up the story at different points in the story, and that's what Matthew is actually doing. He has an abridged version of the story, much more 
truncated, not as long as Mark and Luke in terms of the detail. And so I think that's how we make sense of this, that Matthew is picking up the story when the, the word uh, of her death has come to Jesus and to Jairus, and it's kind of truncated, so I think that's one way that we can understand it. But as you think about these two stories, you think about uh, a synagogue leader, we find out that it's his 12-year-old daughter. Luke tells us it's his only daughter, and she's at the verge of death, and then she ends up passing away in the story. That's extremely painful. And then we have a woman, and a woman, this woman has a hemorrhage of blood. She either has a menstrual issue that uh, just doesn't go away. Some scholars believe that maybe she has a tumor on her uterus. But whatever the case is, she's constantly bleeding. Whatever you may think about The Chosen, that series that has come out, and I know some controversy has surrounded it, I would just encourage you to do your homework and listen to the original sources before you come to any hard conclusions on it. But they depicted this story, and I thought they did a good job with it. And they, sh- they showed the misery of the woman. They showed how she was kind of, uh, you know... Um, an outcast in society and how she would just bleed all of a sudden and it was very inconvenient to say the least and embarrassing. Maybe the closest parallel I could think of is some of you deal with bloody noses and you know that your nose can bleed in an instant and you know it's inconvenient and it can be embarrassing and some of you have those issues but, but that's nothing near what she was going through. In fact, in the Mosaic law, there were certain guidelines for women. Remember, this is Old Testament law, but this is what it said, that a woman, when she was menstruating, she was unclean for seven days after that. And so there was a a period where she had to kind of just isolate herself and not be able to go into worship and stuff like that. And she also could not have intimate relations with her husband during that time when she was going through that. This is Old Testament law. So... Uh, that would probably exclude her from places of worship because she was bleeding all the time. Her husband couldn't be intimate with her according to the law, therefore her husband likely divorced her. So this is a woman that's not only uh, having a tough time in terms of uh, inexplicable suffering that's gone on and on, but it's affected her and how people see her and where she can go and where she can't go. And this has been going on for 12 years, and Mark tells us that she spent all her money on doctors. Uh, I'll, I'll just say another practical application is some of you have had a family member, perhaps you, go through a medical crisis. And if you didn't have all the insurance in place or, you know, things are unpredictable, maybe you spent all that you saved on doctors. That was this lady. But she had no cure. The key word in the New American Standard is she was suffering on and on and on and on. And then there's two stories of suffering because there's a dad whose little girl is about to die and she's only 12 years old. Now, what's interesting to think about as students of the Bible is that there's a sub-layer to this text and many of Jesus's miracles are also spiritual parables. They have a deeper message to them, if you will. Think about what's going on. There's a woman with an incurable hemorrhage. She's bleeding. Nothing can stop the bleeding And there's a 12-year-old girl on the verge of death. She's been suffering for 12 years. The little girl is 12 years old. And in the Jewish mind, 12 always reminds them of the nation of Israel because they were made up of 12 tribes. So the sub-level is this. The nation is bleeding or hemorrhaging. 
And you could say it's about to die. And in fact, the nation would be judged by God through the Roman armies in 70 AD, about 40 years from the time that these events are recorded. Israel would be judged by Almighty God. And they've never really recovered from it. So the nation is in view here. And I will just say, to make an application to a contemporary audience, here we are in America. America has foundations in the Bible. In fact, oaths were made by our founding fathers, including our first president, George Washington, to Almighty God, giving God the credit for this nation, for the victories that we experienced early on in this nation. And I don't have to tell you that our nation is hemorrhaging. We have a wound that almost would appear incurable the way things have moved so quickly in the last couple of decades. And God said to Israel in, through Jeremiah, you have an incurable wound. And God said, basically, I've wounded you and I will heal you if you will simply reach out the hand of faith to me. And we're gonna watch the woman with the flow of blood say to herself, if I can only touch the fringe of his garment, I will be made well. And there's salvation language here because the word for made well in Greek is one word, sozo, and it means to be saved. It's the only place where a physical healing is spiritual salvation language is used. Think about the picture now. Here, here's something else. Early on in Matthew 9, if you take a peek at verse 3, Jesus heals a paralytic. And he says something shocking to him. He says, look at uh, actually verse 2. They brought to Jesus a paralyzed uh, man laying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I'm going to continue to walk out this sub-picture just for a second. In Exodus 4.22 God said, Israel is my son and told Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my son go because Israel is my firstborn. There is no other place in the New Testament where Jesus calls someone son. And there's no other place in the New Testament other than the parallel accounts of, the, of these accounts where Jesus calls someone my daughter or daughter. Now, I don't have daughters. I raised three sons with my beautiful wife here. But we have an adopted daughter now, Natalie. She's our daughter-in-law. And we're about to have a wedding in our family. And we're going to get another daughter-in-law. And her name is Sawyer Lee. And both these ladies are amazing ladies. And we have a granddaughter now. And her name, if you remember the Peanuts cartoon, is Melody. Melody. Some of you, that'll ring a bell. Some of you, it means absolutely nothing. That's okay. Never mind, I, I'm not going to give you the detail. <laughs> but here's, here's the point. I want you to see the spiritual picture. My son, your sins are forgiven. My daughter, your faith has made you well. Israel is my son and my daughter. I can raise you back to life. You're paralyzed by your sin. I can stop the bleeding and the hemorrhaging. I can save you if you will reach out the hand of faith and grab hold of even the hem of my garment. If you just put out one finger of faith, I'll, I'll restore your life. Oh, some of us have been crying out for our nation, right? And we've been saying, oh, Lord, would that our nation would 
reach out the hand of faith, but it's more than that. It's not just our nation. Would that the church, your sons and daughters would come home. So this week, I was preparing and I was thinking, you know, these are some of the most painful things in life. Uh, The death of a child. Uh, Inexplicable, long suffering that you, you try to get a doctor to help you, multiple doctors to no avail, spend all your time, resources, and you don't get healing. Some of the most painful things in life are right before us. And one of the reasons I'm a Christian is because Jesus entered into our pain. Amen? He entered into my pain. He's right there in the midst of it. So at the end of first service, I had mentioned some of these connections with the son and the daughter and how painful it is to lose a child. And some of you are in that position and you have, and a young couple walks forward at the end of first service. And I can see that there's a lot of of emotion and there's tears in their eyes. And they said, would you pray for us? I said, sure. I said, "Uh, what's going on? Well, the, the, the mom said that on Mother's Day, so about a month ago, she had a daughter prematurely at six months pregnant, and it was a stillbirth, and they lost her. And they said that ever since that happened on Mother's Day, and they lost their their daughter, it's caused them to come back to church. And they've been here about four Sundays in a row since then. And they both gave me permission to share this, and he's in the military, and Basically, they said this, that through this tragedy, as as hard as it is, and they ask for prayer and they need God's comfort, it has drawn them back to the Lord. And I'll just say this, that I don't understand all the whys of the pain and suffering in the world and the losses, and I'm not gonna try to tell you that I do understand it. But I do know that there's moments in life where Jesus becomes the only place we can turn. And we're gonna watch a synagogue leader and a woman reach out the hand of faith and really in desperation. And Jesus is going to do what only Jesus can do, and that is heal what seems to be incurable. In fact, he's going to say to the woman with the flow of blood after she's healed, your faith has saved you. Your faith has healed you. And if we're gonna find healing in our nation, if we're gonna find healing in the church in our nation, We're going to have to restore biblical faith in the Messiah. Amen? You agree with that? Not a bad time for an amen, a hallelujah. Something else. Most of you know that the synagogue leader's name is Jairus. The other accounts give us his name. And Jairus has a daughter that Jesus says she hasn't died, she's only sleeping. And I'll explain that in a moment. Jairus, the synagogue leader's name means, get this, he will awaken. Tell me that the Bible is not written by the finger of God. Jairus' very name points to the miracle that he asked the Lord to do. So the story begins in verse 18. Remember a shorter version from Matthew While he was saying these things to them, Matthew sets the scene as Jesus is having a religious debate about fasting and feasting with uh, sinners and tax gatherers and so forth. Behold, the camera pans, there came a synagogue official. This is the top, probably the top religious leader in authority in Capernaum. 
of the local synagogue. He may be something like a pastor who organizes all the services and so forth. He bowed down before Jesus and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, the synagogue official we learn from the other gospels is named Jairus. And the other gospel writers say that basically, not only did he bow down, but he fell at the feet of Jesus. The, the language literally, when you look it up in the, the Greek lexicons, literally can mean he collapsed at Jesus' feet. These are such hard things for any of us to deal with, right? Having your daughter on the brink of death. Matthew says he's already got word that she's died, but we know how difficult this had to be. And Jairus, we don't know what his interaction with Jesus is to this point. We don't know if he had a negative view of Jesus. We don't know if he had a positive view. We're, we're not completely sure. Jesus had done something in the synagogue earlier that got a uh, kind of a violent response, but we don't know if Jairus was a, among those who thought negatively of the Lord or not. Here's what we know. This guy has collapsed at Jesus' feet and he's begging him to help his daughter. It's his only daughter. She's about 12 years old, Luke 8, 42, and she's dying. And so this is the story that is before us. And Jesus, 19, rose. There's no verbal response recorded from Jesus. He just got up. Maybe he gave a nod like, yes, I'm coming. And he began to follow him, and so did his disciples. The other gospel writers tell us, Mark 5, 24, as Jesus went off with him, a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him. In fact, the NIV of Luke 8, 42 says, Jesus was on his way with Jairus. The crowds almost crushed him. You have to get out of your mind the idea that Jesus is walking down the street with a few disciples and a few people. The crowds had so... Uh, gathered around Jesus, that it was like being at an event like a concert or something like that, or Disneyland, for those of you who choose to go to Disneyland. My, my wife and I uh, had an invite to go watch a wonderful uh, show at Christmas time at Disneyland, and that was a, a great blessing. That show was a great blessing, but we were trying to prepare ourselves to go to Disneyland because it sounds good until you're there. Can I get a witness? Now, if you're younger... You, just wait. Wait a couple of decades and things will change. And my wife and I were there and we went to California Adventure and we were dodging people and hitting shoulders of people and dodging moms with strollers that seemed like they were going 25 miles an hour. In fact, I dove into the bushes to avoid one of the strollers. It was pandemonium. And finally we looked at each other and we said, let's pull off to the side and have a cup of coffee and just watch people. Boom, 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 boom. It was craziness. Who pays for this? We got in free. Praise the Lord. Anyway, so, and still we regretted it. <laughs> so, why do I bring it up? I have no idea. No, I do. The crowds were so thick that Jesus could barely move. There were people were pressing in, and you could imagine Jairus thinking, Let's go. No time to spare. Let's get to my house. But everybody wanted a piece of Jesus. The crowds were so thick. This was his everyday experience. Imagine how patient he was. 
You know, sometimes we get caught up in a crowd and we're, we're, we're feeling claustrophobic and we can't wait to get out of there. This, this was Jesus's, much of his existence on the planet, his life on the planet was huge crowds and need after need and desperation. And of course, if it's my need, I want Jesus to pay attention to it the most. He should, you know, my sense of urgency should be at the top of the list. So this is what he dealt with. And the crowds were pressing in and Jairus is desperate and Maybe he's got tears in his eyes and he's excited at least that Jesus is coming, maybe hoping against hope. And all of a sudden, Matthew says, Behold, 20, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. Now, as he's on his way to touch the little girl, to heal the little girl, which we know will happen, another person emerges and it's this woman. And for her to even be in a crowd was something that she probably didn't normally do, but she somehow made her way through. She came up behind him, probably for fear that she would be found out. And she just was saying to herself, and the, the language would allow for repetition, if only I can touch the fringe of his garment. If only I can put a finger on one of those tassels that hang down from Jewish men. I will be well. I will get well. And so she came behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And she was suffering, long, hard, arduous suffering. The physician, Luke, tells us that she went to doctors but couldn't be helped by anyone anymore. Luke 8.43, you can take a look at it. It just grown, grown worse and worse and worse. There was, seemed to be no solution. And she said, if I could just touch the fringe of his garment, let me just paint the picture for you a sec. In the first century, Jewish men wore tassels on the four corners of their cloak or their garment. And the law said in the book of Numbers that they would sew blue tassels into each of the corners. They would hang down from a Jewish man. And they were symbolic of, I belong to God. They were a reminder that I'm part of the covenant people. I believe the word of God. Kind of like if you wear a little bracelet reminding you of who you are. But it was the law to do this. Now, during the time that the Nazis were doing their terrible stuff, the Jewish people, in order to hide from being recognized as a Jew, would sew the tassels into their undergarments to keep from being killed by the Nazis. And today, my understanding is that Orthodox Jews uh, will sew these into a prayer shawl that they wear. So still, it's, it's the idea of a tassel. And the, the woman may be saying something like this, if I could just touch a tassel. If I could reach out the hand of faith and grab hold of just one of those tassels that hang down from his garment, I will be made well. And brethren, here's the picture. We are to reach out and grab hold of eternal life. And the Lord is passing by all the time. He's available to each one of us. And if we will reach out the hand of faith, he will extend to us salvation. He will stop the bleeding, and I'm talking about the internal bleeding. I'm talking about the spiritual issues that we have in our lives. Because remember, there's a spiritual picture underneath this. And so that's what she said to herself. If only I can touch the garment of the king, the great high priest, I will be made well. God said this through uh, I, uh, Jeremiah the prophet. This is Jeremiah 30. I'm gonna use some selected verses. This is verse seven. Alas, for the day is great, there is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Jeremiah 30, 11, I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. 
I will destroy completely all the nations where I've scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly and I will by no means leave you unpunished. I'm dropping down to uh, Jeremiah 30, verse 17. I will restore you to health and I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord. And right before that, it bas he basically says, you have what appears to be an incurable wound, but I will heal you. Now that's Israel. That's the connection to the woman. That's the great need of our day or of any time for us to be saved. We have an incurable wound. It's sin. And the wages of our sin is death. But the free gift of God you receive the gift of God by faith. You can't earn it. We don't deserve it. Yet when we reach out for it, he will grant it to us simply by faith. There's no good works the woman did. She came from behind. She was desperate. There's nothing that Jairus could do. He collapsed before the Lord. And the Lord basically says to the prophets, if you turn to me, you will be healed. If you don't turn to me, you will remain in your position of hemorrhaging, if you will. That's what's before us. She kept saying to herself, if only 21, if only I can touch his garment, literally, I'll be saved. I will get well. If only, if only. She came up and she touched his cloak. Spurgeon puts it this way. A piece of fringe and a finger sufficed to form a contact between a believing sufferer and an almighty savior. And so she had this thought. It was obviously great faith to, to think the thought. And she extended the hand of faith. And Mark 5.21 puts it this way. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. The NIV said, says freed from her suffering, Mark 5.29. Luke puts it this way. And Luke was a medical doctor. She came up behind him, touched the fringe of his cloak and immediately the hemorrhage stopped. Can you imagine the emotion that this woman must have been feeling? You know, when we go through chronic ailments in this life, sometimes we feel like, is it ever gonna end, right? Is there ever gonna be a point where I don't have to deal with this or there's some resolution to what ails me? And I'm sure that's probably where she had ended up. And after all these doctors saw her, I'm sure it was easy just to dismiss her because we are people, right? And we forget about people who suffer and it's easy for us just to think about our own issues. And all of a sudden, the hemorrhaging stopped with one touch, one word from the Lord, one release of his power, and he can change everything, amen? That's what's happened to us. That's my story. I think it's your story. I was at a desperate point in my own life and I reached out a hand and said, oh, Lord, save me. And he is faithful to save. And that's exactly what he's done, I think, in most of our lives. If only I can touch his garment, I'll be healed. The other gospel writers fill in the blanks. Mark tells us that Jesus said, who touched my garments? Mark 5.32. And it was, I think, Peter who responded, Lord, what do you mean, who touched your garments? everybody's touching you. Look at this crowd. We're squeezed in like sardines. A day in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ, right? There's so many people around. What do you mean? Who touched you? Everybody's touching you. We can't wait to get out of here, right? And Jesus says, no. Luke 
has it this way. No, someone touched me, Luke 8, 46, and I know that power has gone out from me. Well, Jesus sensed that this was a different kind of touch. Let me give you an example. You can preach to a sanctuary of people. You can preach to a stadium of 30,000 people. And the power of the Lord will go out. And some people will be converted on the spot and other people will be like a wall. What's the difference? Why does one person get saved and healed and another person not? The difference is faith, amen? Because we are saved by grace, but through the channel of faith. Now, some of that is a mystery, how that all comes together at a, a point in time for a certain individual, but that's the deal. And so Jesus says, no, this was a different kind of touch. Power went out from me, and the woman was healed. And the other gospel writers say that she was embarrassed, she was trembling, or she, maybe she was more afraid. And she explained that it was her. It's me, Lord. I'm the one. And everything came to a stop. Can I ask you? Would you stop for her? Would you stop for a woman who is considered an outcast in society? Would you stop the train for a woman like that? Jesus didn't say, hey, why'd you touch me? Right? He didn't rebuke her. He didn't say, I don't like to be touched. Don't be touching me. And by the way, it would appear that you're unclean. No, Jesus didn't care about how people were categorized because his holiness made people clean. They didn't make him unclean. He didn't worry about that stuff. I know some of us are a little weird about being touched. Anybody out there? Now, we have people in the Christian community at different levels of, uh, let's put it as acceptance. For example, some of you know Paul Hicks. Paul Hicks has now moved with Deborah to Prescott. And his famous thing is, woo, we called him the woo-hooer. And he would woo-hoo during the services and everywhere else. And Paul would give you a holy kiss. And he would defend it as being biblical. But it wasn't just a kiss, it was wet. <laughs> and he, he claimed it was the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I don't buy it. No, he would kiss you on the cheek, okay? But... He would spray you. Wow! And, and you just have to love him in the Lord. No, Paul's such a great man. But there's other people. I remember I did a prayer at the end of one of our services many years ago. And I asked everybody to hold hands. I said, you're supposed to love each other, so hold hands with uh, the other believers next to you. And I had a few uh, notes in the offering box. <laughs> I don't like to be touched, man. <laughs> I, whoa. You know, some people are really huggy. Other people are like, and other people are like, <laughs> I'm not quite there. Don't touch me, man. But Jesus didn't do that. It was more a question because he knew what the touch was. Someone believed and had their life changed in the moment. You know, it's, it's really interesting to think about how faith is so all we got to do is reach out a hand, and God saves. And so Jesus turned to her, 22. He turned around and looked at her, and he said, Daughter, notice that. Be of good cheer. Take courage. Same thing he said to the paralytic earlier in the chapter. Your faith, literally, 
has saved you. And Matthew says it's right here that she was made well. Again, the account truncated. And so Jesus, according to the other gospel writers, after she told him who she was and what happened, he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your chaos is over. Be healed of your affliction, Mark 5, 34. Luke 8, 48 puts it this way. He said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in shalom. Go in peace. And off she went, a life no more uh, hemorrhaging. She had experienced, you could say, a type of salvation. So beautiful. But you have to know that Jairus is still standing there. And the original story was supposed to be we're going to his house to heal his daughter. Remember? Remember that? <laughs> Good for you, lady. <laughs> I'll send you a Christmas card. But my daughter, right? And the train is moving so slow. It doesn't seem like the walk of faith sometimes is like almost half steps. We walk by faith and not by sight. But there's Jairus. Can we get things moving? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I'm happy for you. Pray for you. Maybe we can have dinner sometime, but my daughter. But there's something else going on here. Because in the healing of the woman with the flow of blood, do you think that Jairus' faith was bolstered? He's about to get the most devastating of all news. Because the other gospel writers say as they got closer to the house, a servant came out and said, don't trouble the master anymore. Your daughter's dead. And Jesus says to Jairus, just keep believing. Keep walking by faith. We're going to get there. And something good is going to happen. And even though you've just got this devastating news, you keep walking. Because I've, I'm going to do something and I'm in the situation and that makes all the difference. And so when they, Jesus came into the official's house, 23, and saw the flute players, these are the, these are the ones playing the dirge. This is the funeral music and the crowd in noisy disorder. Uh, Mark tells us he took Peter, James, and John, and obviously the parents are gonna go in as well. And there was a lot of commotion and a lot of loud weeping and wailing. Uh, in, in the Jewish uh, way of doing things, they didn't embalm bodies. And so they would bury someone after death within 24 hours, basically. And so if you were on your deathbed, they would start coordinating the service. And it's maybe a little bit brutal, but it's just the truth of how they did things. So these people were probably on call. And then when the little girl breathed their last, they came to the house. And even in Jewish society at this time, they would hire at least one professional mourner, even if you were, you were poor, and they would show up. This sounds weird to us, but they'd show up at your house, and they would just start wailing over the dead person, even though they didn't know you. And there was weeping and wailing, and if certainly the, the mom is weeping and wailing, and friends and family, and they're playing the, the dirge music, and it's, it's a place of death. And Jesus sees the noise and the disorder and the commotion and all that is going on. And he began to say, 24, I like to say, get out of here, but he said, depart <laughs> to those who are weeping and wailing, for the girl has not died, 
she's asleep. And they began laughing at him. The King James says, they laughed him to scorn. Isn't it amazing how quickly they went from wailing to laughing? And this tells you something, that there were professional mourners in that place, but they were also offended by Jesus. Because Jesus said, no, she's only asleep. And you said, well, which is it? Was she asleep or was she dead? Well, to Jesus, death is sleep. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope because those who have fallen asleep in Jesus will live again. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord, but the body looks as if it's sleeping. And to Jesus, death is just sleep because he's going to wake us up. Amen? We're going to live again. Our bodies are going to rise, I should say. And so they played the dirge, and Jesus said, stop the music, get out of here. She's only sleeping, and they mocked him. Can you imagine people laughing in the face of the King of kings and the Lord of lords? But brethren, they do it every day on our planet. Some people, it seems to be their business to mock the living God. And I will tell you, Quoting a verse, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. Now, God is patient. But if you mock the living God, you're playing a dangerous game. And so they laughed in his face, and he basically said, take a hike, take your instruments with you, and get out. And he went into the room with Peter, James, and John, putting the other gospel accounts together. He sent them out. Mom and dad were there. And when the crowd had been put out 25, he entered and took her by the hand and the girl arose. Mark has it this way. He took the child by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl or little lamb, arise. Just a touch of his hand. Just like he did for Peter's mother-in-law. Literally, little lamb, arise. There's a story about Martin Luther he lost a daughter to the plague. I think she's about 14 years old. And they came to take her body away, you know, the undertaker and so forth. And it was said that they were hammering the nails of the coffin and that Luther said, hammer away because she will live because he believed the gospel. Horatio Spafford wrote, it is well with my soul. He lost four daughters to the sea, and uh, it was devastating to him, but you all know that in the wake of that, he wrote these famous words. We will rise to a life where Satan does not buffet, where trials do not come, and where sea billows do not roll, and where all is finally well with our souls. And so Jesus does a miracle. He raises a dead girl uh, back to life, 12 years old, and the spiritual picture is obvious. Luke puts it this way, that her spirit returned to her body because death is simply the separation of the soul from the body or the spirit from the body to go and be with the Lord and body and soul will be reunited at the resurrection. If you ever wondered about how this works, let me just explain quickly. When a Christian dies, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. That's clear from many verses. Philippians 1, 2 Corinthians 5. We go to be with the Lord. Our body is buried. 
at the resurrection and rapture, the spirit and the body reunite. So we don't, we don't die. We live. But one day our bodies will live again at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the Bible describes this all working together. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. If you want the reference, Luke 8.55 says her spirit returned and she rose immediately and Jesus gave orders. You got to love this. Give her something to eat. And all God's people said, yeah. Don't you love Jesus, right? Give her a falafel. Give her a maple bar. I don't know what it was, but give her something to eat. And she rose. And this news, as we would expect, went out into all the land, but sadly, much of the land didn't repent, as we've already learned. I want you to turn to Revelation 3, and we're done. Last book of your Bible, Revelation 3. What does this mean to me? What does it mean to the nation? What does it mean to my family? What does it mean to the contemporary church? Let me show you something that hit me this week. You take this for what it's worth. You ask the Lord for discernment. Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, Revelation 3.1. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. Can't help but think of our stories, right? For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people, Revelation 3, 4, in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they walk with me in white and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Heavenly Father, thank you for your living word. Thank you for this wonderful congregation. I know many have been praying for a great awakening in America, a revival in the church. Lord, that we would turn and you would stop the hemorrhaging. You would heal our land. You would stop maybe some of our personal hemorrhaging in our lives and some of the chaos as a result. Lord, that our nation and our, specifically because judgment begins in your house, the church would wake up. We would follow you. We know there's a remnant and we know that there's many who are fighting the good fight and I give you thanks for them. But there's a need, Lord. There's a wake-up call and it's now. And I believe your word to us is that we would turn and if there's some that hear my voice right now and they've been distant, maybe something has happened to drive them back to you, whatever it may be. I pray that you, Lord, would be gracious. And right now, if that's you, if you're a prodigal, if you have walked away from the Lord or maybe you've never come to Christ and you sense the internal struggle, the hemorrhaging. You sense what sin has done to you. Reach out the hand of faith. He is so faithful to save. 
You know, he came to enter into our, our pain. He came because of our sin to rescue us. That, that was his mission. He so loved you, he came on a rescue mission. He died on that terrible cross. He rose from the dead. He's the God of resurrection as well. Once you trust him, just something like this, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against others, but I'm sorry. Would you heal me? you stop the hemorrhaging in my life? I reach out the hand of faith. Would you save me and make me well? Give me peace with God through my Lord Jesus Christ. Look, you don't have to have a perfect prayer, but if you need to come home as a prodigal as well, just tell him you believe. Repent, trust in Christ, and he is faithful to save. And Father, for all the precious people who either have heard this message today or will hear it, I pray that you'd bring comfort where comfort is needed, perseverance where perseverance is needed, hope where hope is needed, strength to stand strong where that is needed. And you would just stir your church to love and good deeds. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. We want to honor you this week in the way that we live, so lead our steps in the way that you'd have them to go. Help us redeem the time and to find the, once again, the joy and the beauty of our salvation. In Christ's name I pray, all God's people said.